Hello everyone, welcome back to the Salem Witch Trials. Let's continue right where we left off. So basically the judges and the hierarchy of the political circle, they suffered major financial losses from their investments in frontier sawmills and speculations in frontier lands. Their losses and the colonies would have left them looking for someone to blame. And unless they wanted to accept responsibility themselves, the list of suspects was short. It's sad to say, under such circumstances, it's often human nature not to look within, but to look outward. The judges did exactly that, preferring to hold Satan and his minions accountable for their actual situation. Have the trials taken place ten years earlier, therefore, it is quite likely that they would have ended differently, with acquittals, with convictions carrying lesser penalties, as happened in cases heard by many of the same men. The many daunting problems facing the colony in 1692 surely convinced them of the need for an intensified campaign for moral reformation. Gone were the days when witches would be placed under house arrest, or murdering pirates let off with vines. Offenders now must expect the justice of exemplary punishment. This overriding need to find and convict witches and to mediate those severe sentences dominated by legal proceedings. From the start, it was clear that the judges accepted the presence of witches and dedicated themselves for rooting them out, even before the questioning began of Sarah Good, Tichaba and Sarah Osborne. Hathorne and Corwin had assumed their guilt. Rather than weighing the evidence behind the charges, they became interrogators, focusing on determining how the witches operated, identifying their circle of conspirators, and finding out why they chose their particular victims. The assumption of guilt and eagerness to convict helps explain some of the legal irregularities in the proceedings. In the early months of the proceedings, the judges failed to enforce the requirement that those lodging the charges had to post a bond. Such financial obligations generally ensured that no spurious charges were made. It became easy to press charges, and accusations grew at a faster rate than they might have otherwise. Given that Corwin's child was believed to be afflicted by the accused, he should have recused himself, reviolated a well-known English common law principle that a person could not be a judge in his own case. Common was not the only man who should have recused himself from the proceedings, as the father and uncle of the afflicted witnesses, Samuel Paris, should never have served as court secretary. Likewise, Thomas Putnam should not have taken down dispositions for the court, given that his wife and daughter were afflicted, and that he himself, had made formal complaints against at least 35 people and testified against 17 of them. Even more so than that, the judges, these men, believed that Satan was loose in Salem Village. Putnam's dispositions seemed to have been particularly helpful in convicting witches, perhaps during part with embellishing them with a, a formulaic phrase, I verily believe in my heart that the accused was a witch. It's impossible to determine the degree at such enhancements strengthened the prosecution's case, but at any rate, 
permitting such adversaries of the accused to have an official court capacity certainly did nothing to aid the defendants or ensure even the appearance of a fair and impartial trial. When the court of Oya and Termina began its work, it adopted the presumption of guilt first made by Hathorne and Corwin at the early arraignment hearings. Of all the people questioned by the judges in 1692 on charges of witchcraft, only one, Nemahaya Abbott, was found innocent by the court and freed after questioning. The odds were even worse for the accused, who were indicted and went to trial. The court of Oyer and Termina tried 28 people for witchcraft, and all 28 were found guilty. This is the sort of record one would expect to find only in sure trials in authoritarian state, such as Soviet Union in the 1930s, or North Korea today. It is a prosecutional success rate unparalleled in American history before or since. Prior to 1692, Massachusetts courts produced only eight guilty verdicts for witchcraft in 31 decisions, a 26% conviction rate. An analysis of the magistrate's questions and the responses of the afflicted and the accused demonstrate one way the judges steered the process toward the predetermined verdict of guilty. The judges asked very narrow questions of the afflicted, designed to elicit a short, positive response. Many were designed to lead the afflicted and show that the judges believed their testimony and were only asking them to confirm the details. In this way, the magistrate's superstitions could be turned into evidence. The judges used a different strategy when questioning the accused. They regularly asked questions that also functioned as accusations. Accusations that were difficult to disprove because the judges controlled the interrogations. For example... Hathorne's asking Sarah Good, What evil spirits have you familiarity with? Makes a presumption of guilt. Such questions are designed to elicit a confession, and the interview was merely designed to determine whether there was enough evidence to indict Good or put her on trial, not ever to acquit her. Their strategy consisted of constructing a guilty but unwilling to confess mentality by which they assumed that the defendants who refused to confess were lying. Some tried to fight against this presumption of guilt, but many were eventually browbeaten into accepting the judges' premises. The Salem judges were quite affected of coercing false accusations. The only body that seemed to act with restraint in 1692 was the grand jury, presumably because they met on their own and without the influence of the judges. Eight suspected witches received at least one finding of ignoramus, that is, lacking sufficient evidence to be held for trial. Unfortunately, the grand jury found compelling evidence in other charges, for seven out of the eight, so they were still held for persecution. Even so, September 17th, when the grand jury dismissed both charges against William Proctor, the court did not immediately set him free. The son of John and Elizabeth Proctor apparently then faced more charges, which would not be dismissed by a grand jury until January 1693. Nonetheless, though lacking education and judicial experience, the grand jurors seemed more capable of practising legal restraint than the judges. The judges struggled to proceed under English law, 
and while they consulted many appropriate English legal texts and discussions of witchcraft cases. Hard and fast rules governing evidence in English courts of the day did not exist for any kind of trial, let alone for witch trials. That is why they pushed hard for confessions and also sought other types of proof, including physical and spectral evidence, as well as the evil eye and touch tests. Physical evidence often took form of poppets. The courts also paid close attention to any ointments or oils in the homes of the witches, for these were supposedly used by witches to help them fly on broomsticks. Hmm, that's a lot of crap, guys. Never happened. When physical evidence was lacking, the judges turned to more controversial methods, including limited use of judicial torture. While nobody was tried entirely on spectral evidence, it was what was initially brought against almost everyone at Salem, becoming a litmus test for discovering a witch. Once spectral, ev- spectral evidence was deployed, the court began looking for other evidence to corroborate it, given that all authorities urged that it must be used with caution. As early as his May 31st, 1692 letter to Richards, Cotton Mather warned, I must humbly beg you that in the management of the affair in your worthy hands, you do not lay more stress upon your spectre testimony than it will bear. It is very certain that the devils have sometimes represented the shapes of persons, not only innocent, but very virtuous. The return of several ministers penned by Cotton and other leading ministers on June the 15th, not only provided similar caution about spectral evidence, but also raised concerns of the efficiency of the evil eye and the touch test. Nor can we esteem alterations made in the sufferers by a look or touch of the accused to be an infallible evidence of guilt, but frequently reliable to be abused by the devil's legal means. Unfortunately, however, Mather and his colleagues hedged their advice. While they urged caution, they also knew that Satan was loose and that people were suffering by molestations from the invisible world. So they exhorted the judges to carry out the speedy and vigorous persecution of such as have rendered themselves obnoxious, and the ministers showed defences to the judges, expressing full confidence in their ability to determine who was a real witch. And, well... They were congratulating them for their work so far, including the trial and execution of Bridget Bishop. The ministers thanked God for the success he had provided to the diligent and careful efforts of our honourable rulers to detect abominable witchcrafts. In other words, you need to be careful, but you're doing a great job, so keep it up. Believing in any case that the accused were very likely guilty, the judges read the return of the ministers as a confirmation of their procedures and an encouragement to proceed with all deliberate speed. While many believe that it was possible for Satan to produce a spectre of an innocent, others suggested that he could only use a form of his willing accomplices. Here again, the judge's presumption of guilt made it far easier to accept this questionable evidence. Spectral evidence was not just drawn from written dispositions made before the trial by the afflicted, it was also used in the courtroom with high drama and great effect. The climax of most trials occurred when the afflicted confronted the accused. When this happened, invariably, the alleged witch spectre harmed the afflicted.
who writhed and shrieked in pain in response to spectral attacks invisible to the jury and the rest of the court. This very public demonstration of spectral evidence could not help but have a strong impact on the jury, giving such evidence far more weight than it deserved. Not only did the judges allow this, but they ignored the many suggestions that such afflictions were being faked. Robert Khalif provided the most extreme examples of courtroom fraud in his More Wonders of the Invisible World. He said that at Sarah Good's trial, one of the afflicted screamed that Sarah had stabbed her with a knife. Upon examination, she produced a broken tip of a knife blade. However, a young man showed the court the matching half and blade of the knife, which he said he had broken the day before in the presence of the afflicted, casting away the useless tip. The afflicted was then bidden by the court not to tell lies. Khalif also noted the case of John Alden, a complete stranger to the afflicted. In court, the judge asked the accusers to pick Alden out of a crowd, but they could not do so until, as one girl admitted to the court, a man behind her identified Alden for her. Rebecca Nurse's daughter-in-law, Sarah Nurse, testified that she had seen Sarah Bibber stabbing herself with pins. Despite Sarah's testimony, Bibber's accusation that Rebecca Nurse suspected her stabbed her with the pins was entered into evidence. Apparently without even questioning evil, it was just done. Mary Warren made a statement that the afflicted were dissembling. Clearly, there were many suggestions of courtroom fraud that were ignored by the judges in their rush to convict. Some of the shortcomings of the court were vividly and poignantly evoked by Mary Etsy in the petition she wrote in court in mid-September after she was condemned to die. Her letter was a plea, not for her life, but for others awaiting trial, so that no more innocent blood may be shed. Given the wiles and subtly of the accusers, Etsy urged the judges to keep the afflicted apart and to examine them separately, thus preventing them from conspiring and bringing to a halt the spectacle of the animated group collectively acting out their afflictions in the courtroom. She also suggested that the confessed witches be put on trial, for she was confident that some of them were lying. Etsy did not question the sincerity or earnestness of the judges. In the discovery and detecting of witchcraft and witches, saying that they would not be guilty of innocent blood for the world, but her own innocence proved that errors had been made. Etsy was very careful to be deferential to the magistrates because the court had made it quite clear it would not stand for anyone questioning its legitimacy or its processes. Those who had done so had been harshly punished. As one legal historian of the trials had pointed out, no one who behaved defiantly or imprudently towards the court escaped with his or her life. The best example of this behaviour occurred just days after Etsy penned her letter, when Giles Corey was pressed to death for standing mute. Corey pleaded not guilty, but when asked per custom if he was willing to be tried by the judges and a jury of his peers, he refused to speak, bringing the proceedings to an halt. The court saw this as a direct challenge to its authority, so they literally pressed Corey for an answer. The court did not have to perform this gruesome and ultimate fatal torture to continue with Corey's trial. Just two years before, the Court of Assistance had ignored Pirate William Coward when he refused to plea on the grounds that the court did not have jurisdiction on the high seas.
Despite the lack of a plea, his trial still took place before the assistance the following day. Card was convicted of piracy and soon hanged for that exact crime. Corwin Hathorne, Richards and Seawall were among the assistants who had tried Coward, so they certainly knew this president and ignored it. If those who challenged the court fared poorly, those who tacitly approved of the proceedings by confessing to witchcraft did much better. Not only did these results reinforce the authority of the court, but they were in keeping with the spirit of the campaign for moral reformation. The 1690 order had warned that the jealous God will punish the unrepentant seven times more for their iniquities. But if God grants them the grace to remember whence they have fallen and repent and do their first works, it will give them greater prospect of prosperity that can arise from best councils and biggest armies. Thus, through moral reformation, the black-sliding people can achieve salvation with glory dwelling in our land. Yes, witches and other sinners would meet punishment, but it was far preferable for them to admit sin and repent, for this was the only way to restore the city upon a hill. The judges therefore eagerly sought confession, as it hastened the process of salvation, especially when the confessors spread the circle of witches, the sinners who needed to confess before glory, could dwell in the land. Those who refused to confess faced not only an angry God, but also a full and unforgiving wrath of the court for slowing the process of salvation. One of the biggest puzzles of the trials remains why the court did not execute any witches who confessed. Some have argued that confession was no guarantee of survival and that the court might have convicted and executed all who had confessed once we were no longer useful or they were no longer useful it's like for witnesses or for any type of prosecution not to be there the court actually began this process in september 1692 when it convicted and condemned to death five confessors however only samuel wardwell was executed and he had recanted his confession there was no legitimate reason for the other four Anne Foster, her daughter Mary Lacey Senior, Rebecca Ames and Abigail Hobbs, not to be executed along with Wardwell, and seven others on September the 22nd. It remains unclear whether the court actually ever intended to execute these or other confessed witches. The court's treatment of Dorcas Hall also shows the special treatment accorded to a confessed witch. Tried and condemned, Hall confessed on September 21st, just a day before she, too, was destined to go to the gallows. With Governor Phipps off in Maine, William Stoughton approved a petition for a month's reprieve, submitted John Hale, Nicholas Noyes and two other ministers that endorsed by Judge Gedney. Tichba, the first confessor, also received special treatment. Though she remained in jail for months after she acknowledged her guilt, the court of Iron Terminate never indicted the slave, Later on, they never tried her either. She finally had a case taken up by the Grand Jury of Superior Court of Judica in May 1693, which returned a verdict of ignoramus, not guilty. Surely the court had not kept Tichiba around for so long in hopes that she would accuse more witches. 
while she apparently did not testify or make any dispositions for the prosecution after she was sent to the Boston jail on March the 7th, 1692. In short, the court treated these confessed witches differently from any other court in English history. Though many of the same men helped convict and execute Goody Glover in 1688. And while the judges may have been considering the ultimate trial and execution of the confessors, they clearly did not believe these witches were a threat to the public. Otherwise, they would have ordered swift trials. Unlike the Goody Glover case, there's no sign at all that the judges even asked doctors to observe the confessors to examine their mental well-being. Another sign that they did not face the death penalty. The answers to these riddles may lie in Cotton Mather's letter of advice to Richards on May the 31st, 1692. In it, the young mother's notes. Tis worth considering whether there be a necessity always by extirpations by halter or faggot, hanging or burning, ever wretched creature that shall be hooked into some degrees of witchcraft. What if some of the lesser criminals be only scourged with lesser punishments, and also put upon some solemn, open, public and explicit renunciation of the devil? I am apt to think that the devils would then cease afflicting the neighbourhood. It is a rarely noted but important and unprecedented suggestion, made by the man often seen as a leading witch-hunter, that some convict of witches have publicly confessed, and renounced Satan, might live, and that this might actually bring witchcraft to an end. It is also a suggestion that was entirely in keeping with the campaign for moral reformation. Evidence of this hope for the defeat of Satan through moral reformation can be seen in the treatment of two confessed witches, Dorcas Hoare and Mary Lacey Jr. Perhaps Stern Judge Stoughton approved the temporary reprieve for Hoare in the hope of finding more witches, but the petition noted that she gives account of some other persons that she hath known to be guilty of the same crime. However, he may also have been taken by the minister's observation that a reprieve would allow her time to perfect her repentance for the salvation of her soul. Furthermore, it would be providential to the encouraging of others to confess and give glory to God. Repentance, not execution, could save even the soul of a convicted witch. This was the best way to bring glory to God and ultimately defeat Satan. Similarly, the magistrates offered hope on Mary Lacey Jr. Through confession, when she was examined by Corwin Hathorne and Gedney, one of the judges let her know, You are now in the way to obtain mercy if you will confess and repent. Lacey replied, Lord help me. After which the judge questioned, Do you desire to be saved by Christ? When Lacey answered in affirmative, the judge counselled, Then you must confess freely what you know in this matter. Mary Warren had been present during the questioning and had been having fits. However, after Lacey made detailed confession, Mary Warren came and took her by the hand and was no way hurt. Mary Lacey did earnestly ask Mary Warren forgiveness for afflicting of her and both fell weeping together. Next, Mary Lacey Seeney was brought in and her daughters earnestly bid her repent and call upon God. Such scenes seem more in keeping with a religious revival than a witch trial.
Salem was on the verge of moral reformation and spiritual awakening in 1692, all that was necessary for all the afflicted to confess. Yet all too often the confessions were not forthcoming. Therefore the judges had to act decisively. The more one reads the extensive witch trial court records, the more it's clear that these proceedings were carefully stage-managed by the judges to gain the guilty verdicts they fully expected. Initial examinations were designed to gain confession, with many being forced out of reluctant detainees. Even in his defence of the trials, Cotton Mather noted their formulaic nature. He wrote that Martha Carrier was indicted for the bewitching of certain persons, according to the form usual in such cases. The proceedings almost seemed to follow a script. The evil eye caused afflictions, which would then be cured by the touch of the accused. Mention of the devil's book could cause afflictions, but a witch's confession could end them. Lacking a confession, the trial that ensued, proceeding along a similar path, designed to impress upon the jury the guilt of the accused. The judges regularly asked leading questions and assumed the defendants were guilty, but refused to confess. And they were willing to intervene directly when it appeared the guilty might go free. After the jury initially found Rebecca Nurse not guilty, for example, Stoughton sprang into action. He behaved more like a prosecuting attorney than a magistrate, coaxing the jury to re-examine some of the evidence. The jury reconsidered and finally brought back a verdict of guilty. This unusual behaviour of the judges had not gone unnoticed. By late summer of 1692, more than five months after the legal proceedings had commenced, people, people would finally start to express their growing concern about the proceedings. The judges were finally now going to be judged. And that's the next part of the Salem Witch Trials. So, remember all the relationships that are intertwined with the judges and look at what they're doing now. Interesting, isn't it? What a load of shite. They lied, they lied, and they lied, and they murdered people. In the name of God? Really? In the name of God? Because that's what he wants, clearly. How wrong they were. Thank you for listening to this part. When we come back, we'll be moving on. (sighs) To the extinguishable flame, many blessings.